0: Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 10. And as they approached Jerusalem and Bethage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it back here. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them and they gave them permission. And they brought the cult to Jesus, and put their garments on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their garments in the road, and others spread leafy branches, having cut them off, having cut them from the fields. And those who sent in, went in front of those, went in front, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Lord God, thank you again for your word. And as we look at this seemingly triumphal entry in the, in the last week of, this, of your son, may we be reminded of why you came. You came not to be served, but to serve and, and give your life as a ransom for many. And I pray, Lord, as we uh, think about your life, that will impact and change ours. As we think about your death, that we learn to die to ourselves as we think about your resurrection, that we think about the hope that we have in you. Lord, give us attentiveness now as we go through this text. Stir our hearts and our minds to grow in our appreciation and love for you. Thank you for this time. In your son I may pray. Amen. Last week, when we were going through the passage about Jesus healing the blind man, I made this comment in the introduction that one of the things that makes it difficult for us to relate or even see the significance of Jesus healing the blind is because of modern medicine. This week, I think the things that would make it somewhat difficult for us to understand the significance of what is happening here, and Jesus coming into Jerusalem, is one thing that makes it hard for us to grasp the significance of this text is because we don't live in a country where we have a king. Uh, we, I mean, we can see and hear about kings all over the world, whether it is... Prince, is it Prince Charles? Is that the guy that became king recently? I think that's the guy. When he, when his coronation, I, I'm sure some of you guys watched or at least saw on TikTok or whatever. Or, or if you watching him, or maybe you, the only time you're ever exposed to a king is if you're watching like Black Panther and you know Wakanda Forever. That's like the only type of king that you know. And for us as Americans, it's hard for us to imagine the significance of a king because usually, every four to eight years, we have a new president. But a king is, is usually someone in the same bloodline, someone that's related. And for us, because we don't have a king, we don't really understand the significance of a king coming. And this is something that the Old Testament, it was just a recurring theme in the entire Old Testament. That one day there is going to be a king, and when that king comes, it's going to give us peace. And I know in light of all the things that's going on in the Middle East, I'm I'm sure everyone in Jerusalem is wanting peace and peace. But in reality, there is no peace outside of Christ. And that was just something that we see from all of the Old Testament, that they're longing for that king that's going to bring true and everlasting peace, not just to the nation of Israel, but to the whole world as well. And the Jewish nation as a whole has many kings, it started with, it was supposed to be with God first, but then they wanted a king that to look like everyone else. So they got Saul. They voted him in because he just looked the part. And then eventually God chose David. And through David, God made a promise that there's always going to be someone from his line that is going to rule. And we know that throughout the entire Old Testament, it's, it's really a story of things going from pretty good to great in Solomon's time. And then from great to bad and from bad to worse. Each king just kept getting worse and worse. And there's moments where there are some good kings here and there, but the general totality of the kings of Israel was that they were all terrible kings. It plunged the entire nation into exile and they were brought back. And throughout the whole time, the Israelites were wondering, where is this king? God promised the king for us, where is he? We know through the Old Testament prophets that it is in the life of Jesus. And I think for the Jewish mind, there were some people that saw Jesus and they thought to themselves, this is it. And they were right to a certain extent. They were right to think that it is Jesus, but what they wanted was the wrong thing. They wanted Jesus to overthrow the Roman Empire and then sit on the throne and, and then then Israel will finally be prosperi- have, will have peace and prosperity. But that's not why Jesus came. They misunderstood some of the prophets. They didn't understand that there were that something else had to take place before Jesus will sit on the throne forever. And that is to come into this world and die for the sins of man. So this passage. As we look through this, this is really the final week of the life of Jesus. Mark is showing the most important aspect of Jesus' ministry, that he had to come into this world to ransom many through through his life. This section shows us the beginning of the end for Jesus' life. In Mark chapter 10, verse 22, he told his disciples that he was going to die. Sorry, not, not chapter 10, verse 22. Uh, uh, early on in chapter 10, verse 32, uh, would, you know, they were going up, and then he told them that the Son of Man will be betrayed to the high chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, they will spit on him, they will flog him and kill him, and three days later, he will rise again. So all of these prophecies that Christ is telling them, and as well as Scripture itself, it's going to be fulfilled, and it's going to be right before their eyes. So we're going to look through this text here, and really the first scene that we see, it's, it's the Jesus entering into Jerusalem. So let's look at Mark chapter 11, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent his two disciples. Now, there was great expectations. Again, the people knew about Jesus. Last week, we talked about how there was a blind man that was healed, and even Lazarus was healed. Jesus healed so many other people. In fact, last week's miracle was the last miracle that Jesus would do. I guess, before, uh, I guess he will heal some people's ear. You know, he'll heal the person's ear. He'll even curse the plant. So There are some miracles here and there, but then the very public one is going to be this blind man that gets healed. And he's probably with this crowd here. Because at the end of verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 52, it says that uh, he began to follow him on the road. And immediately in chapter 11, they approached Jerusalem. This whole crowd, including this blind man, is with Jesus. So it was at this fever pitch of expectation. They, they, they saw Jesus. They heard about him. They saw the miracles. And they're wondering, what is he going to do? This last week here is the Passover Passover time, and, uh, and the Jewish leaders was actually hoping that Jesus would be either killed before that or afterwards, and they actually did not want Jesus to be here. But Jesus, because he's fulfilling God's will, is approaching Jerusalem, and this is technically—I know, I know—we're familiar with this text. We call it Palm Sunday, but technically, it's. Actually, a Monday. If you think, if, because if you look at the other gospel, you kind of put it all together. Is actually this is Monday, and and it's significant as well because um, in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, it talks about how the Messiah would come. There's all of these like different years and months that they add up, and it goes all the way until this day here. But not only that, but in the Jewish mind, in order for you to bring a, a you know, when they're about to celebrate Passover, that's what's going on here. They, they would usually bring the unblemished sheep on that Monday. It's the Monday before they'll bring it, and then they'll have to have to get it inspected before they can make an offering. So this is why I think it's. Although we call it traditionally, we call it, you know, Palm Sunday. But you know, you can. It's not a theological point that we could split the church over or start a new de- denomination. But I think it is significant because just as all of these people are going into Jerusalem to to offer a sacrifice Jesus is going to offer himself as the perfect sacrifice in fact even if you think about the passover the passover was supposed to help the israelites remember that they were the delivered from from egypt and throughout the entire old testament there's supposed to be this remembrance that you guys were slaves to the egyptians and the passover was supposed to remind them that they were free That they were no longer held bondage by the Egyptians, but they're now free and are slaves to Yahweh. And there's a parallel here for us as Christians that we understand that there is something greater than just deliverance from an actual city or a country. But rather, the greatest deliverance for us is that we're delivered from the bondage of sin. And we're supposed to remember that. That's why we celebrate communion. But here, there's this Passover, and there's going to be this greater Passover that's at hand. They didn't realize it, but it is coming. In fact, in the old, at that time, when, since all of the people were going to Jerusalem, it, there was about 260 lambs that were probably brought in. But of all those lambs that were there, they were, none of them were able to wash away the, the blood of... None, none of them were able to truly wash away sin. But Jesus is the only one that can do so. He is the this, this true lamb of God, the perfect one. He's going to go into the city... And they're going to kill him. Now as they approach, they, again, they're, they're approaching this place in Jerusalem. That means they have to ascend up the hill. And most likely, they were probably singing the song, Psalms of Ascent. That's like from Psalm 120 to 130-something like or so. <clears throat> These are different psalms that the Jewish people will sing at their, before they go and worship God. And so you can imagine just the crowd, a multitude of people singing songs and memorizing Psalms together, and they're heading up to this place. And there's a large crowd going, and it says that they're at Bethphage and Bethany. Uh, Bethphage is not, not much as significant other than this is probably a small town. Not much is known about them. The, the literal name means house of figs, which, again, not much is known about them. But Bethany is, is significant. Because that's the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Lazarus, at this point, has come back to life because Jesus, you know, spoke in the tomb. And what's fascinating was that John, in John chapter 12, it says that the Pharisee wanted to kill Lazarus after he came back from the dead. They heard about how he rose and how he, how Jesus spoke. Lazarus came back to the dead, and then the Pharisees didn't want people to know about. It. They thought, "We'll just kill him one more time, or he died. We can bring him back into the grave." It says that they were near the Mount of Olives, and this is significant. It's not random. I don't think every, any word in Scripture is random, but it's significant about the Mount of Olives is that this is actually the place where Jesus will come back. In, uh, in, in the Old Testament, it talks about how, how uh, Jesus will, will descend from the sky, and he'll land on the Mount of Olives, and he'll crack the whole mountain in half. So this is something that we can look forward to. But during this time... They're entering, and Jesus sent two of his disciples. It's not known which one of the two he sent. It could even just be a random follower, not necessarily the closest disciples, but two of them were sent out. And Jesus said to him, go into the village opposite you. So this is probably most likely Beth as opposed to Bethany. And immediately as you enter, you will find a cult tied there on which no one has ever sat untied and bring it here. And if someone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately, he will send it back here. Now, it's cool because Jesus is giving this instruction to his disciples. Go, and you're going to find this cult that is tied there. Cult, this translation have the legacy standard Bible uses the word cult. And then I think other translations use the words donkey. Uh, both are generally the same. It's basically like a very small horse, whether it's a donkey or cult, whatever you like. Uh, it's a small little animal there, and it it's that Jesus said it's going to be there, and has no one sat on it, and why is that significant? Why would Jesus want a, like a brand new cult? And it's because Jesus, I mean, under, people understood, Jesus understood that everything that's happening to him right now, it was all part of God's plan. The fact that there was even going to be an animal that's untied, uh, that, that's tied to this Tied to somewhere, and, and he's going to ride on this colt. It's, it's a fulfillment of Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine. It says, "Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Make a loud shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming; he is righteous and endowed with salvation. Lowly and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt and a fowl of a packed animal." So, Old Testament prophecy has pointed to reality that there's go, that the that Jesus is going to come riding in this donkey. And he says, you see this thing, this uh, animal there? You'll see it at some point. Bring it to me. Now, how did Jesus know that was there? Different commentaries debate about this. Some things that Jesus probably have told someone in the past at some point, And he's going to, okay, prepare this animal for me. And when I'm, I give you this signal, which is this which code saying uh, I, the Lord needs this, then you just give it to him. Whoever asks you, that's a secret password. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think Jesus knew because of his divine omniscience, um, <clears throat> he knew exactly what was going to be, what was going to happen, and he knew exactly uh, how everything played out. So he sent his two disciples and told them that there is going to be this cult that no one has ever sat on. And again, this is significant because <clears throat> in the Old Testament, whenever there's a new king that gets coronated, a coronation, um, they would often give them a new cult, like, a, like an animal that, had, that no one's ever rode on. Uh, and that's, again, to show you that this is the new king, that there's a new one that's here. Um, so they were waiting for this king, and Jesus told them that, yeah, look for this animal, and it will bring, bring it to me. Now, I find it interesting that even Old Testament times that they would use an animal that, is, that no one sat on, which you know, there has to be some sort of divine control over this animal. Because if you ever rode a horse, even a horse, they'll, like, kick you off. You have to, like, train this animal. Like, it's not, you know, if a a horse has never been, had anyone sat on them, they will get startled. But for for whatever reason, somehow, the Lord's able to control this animal so that when he sat on it, it was going to be perfectly smooth. I just think that's fascinating. I don't know if that's interesting to you guys. But it is to me. But again, this is all part of fulfillment of Scripture As I said in Zechariah, this was mentioned, that's 500 years before this. In fact, Zechariah 14 says that 500 years from there, there's going to be this Savior coming in with a donkey. It says, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it. Now, Jesus needs to equip the disciples for this, because if they went and just took this donkey or this colt, that's called stealing, and that's like Jesus telling them to sin. So we understand that Jesus owns everything. He's God. He, has, he knows all things. So therefore, everything belongs to him. So if, if, if he said the Lord needs of it, it's basically saying, hey, uh, we need to give you this thing back to our Lord. And in, which implies then that people that have this animal, they must be a believer of Jesus Christ. They probably heard of Jesus Christ. Again, not much is known about them, but they, they must believe because otherwise they would not, it wouldn't make sense And why it would just give this animal away. It said in verse four, they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying, what are you doing untying a colt? And he spoke to them just as Jesus told them and they gave them permission. Again, this shows you that God is completely sovereign, that he knew that the people were going to be there and they're gonna ask a question. He knew that the donkey was gonna be there. He knew they had to enter a particular way. All of these things are to, supposed to show us that God is completely sovereign over the events of the world. From the biggest macro event to the minor details, every little thing God has placed in it so that we can know that God is indeed sovereign over all of history. Again, the people there understood it. So in verse 7, they brought the cult to Jesus, and Jesus, Jesus put and put their coat on it and he sat on it. Again, this is Putting a coat on it on it because you know, no one sat on it before, Jesus sitting on it. And this is fascinating because again, this is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. All the way back in Genesis, Genesis 49, verses 10 to 11, This is right before Jacob was about to die. He has this, he gives each of his son like a prophecy, like a blessing. And when he gave to and, and when he looked at Judah, this is where the line of Jesus comes in. Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his fowl to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes garments in wine, and his robes in the blood of grapes. So there's this foreshadowing here that this is what the Messiah is going to be doing, riding on this donkey and and, and that's, again, you see all of these little pieces put together. And, verse 8, And many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from fields. Again, there's a whole group of people here, and they see Jesus coming on this donkey, and they start throwing their coats down the ground. Now, at that time, it's, I mean, the most, the most modern equivalent I can think of is, like, the red carpet. I don't know why the carpet is red, or I guess now some carpets are green or different colors, but the reason why back then they would put those coats on the ground is because it's supposed to symbolize that you can step on me, that, you, that these people are putting their coats down to show that there is you can, I can, I'm willing to submit to you, that you can step on my back, I'm willing to subject myself to you, which is what people would do for kings. So they would throw this coat on the ground and have people walk, and it's symbolizing that they're willing to submit to him. And it said others spread leafy branches, which was which they had cut from the fields. Leafy branches. This is where, you know, this is where palm tree palm palm leaves are from. This is where we get the idea of Palm Sunday. And palm branches or palm leaves at the time, were a symbol of joy. Um, there was a Jewish man called Simon Maccabees. This is from the Apocrypha. He was this. God that helped Israel overcome some war, and they would use these branches as a way to symbolize joy and prosperity and peace. So then they're showing, like, we're willing to submit to you and that there is great joy and excitement and loyalty to him. Now, the crowd was impressed with all of the things that Christ has done, but they didn't truly have worship. They didn't truly have a worshipful heart. The reason why I say this is because not long from now in this in the book of Mark, that people are going to deny him. And people are going to reject him. The whole, there's going to be a mob of people calling Jesus to be crucified. There's going to be people mocking him. So this coronation, although it seems like some sort of triumph from entry, it really isn't. It's because their expectations were off. They thought that he was going to be some political figure. They didn't understand that he came to die for their sins. But not only that but they went for Jesus for the wrong reasons. They didn't truly have a devotion for him. All the things that they're doing right now, it seems like the right thing to do, but in their own hearts, they did not have a true worshipful heart because they strayed from the Lord. Notice the things that they would say to him, verse nine. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he, is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna the highest. Again, these are are the right things to say, but in their own hearts, the people there, the whole crowd, did not have a true love and devotion for the Lord. And all of this plays out. And even the disciples, when they were following Christ throughout this thing, they saw the magnitude. They were probably joyful in their own hearts, but they didn't understand everything that was happening. In fact, in John chapter 12, it says that the disciples, when they look back at this time, That's when they remembered. They were able to piece all the passages of the Old Testament to what they experienced as one and the same event. And that's when it made sense. Oh, this is why Jesus told two of us to go and get the colt. This is why Jesus had to go in in Jerusalem on a donkey. This is why all of this happened. It's because it was a fulfillment of Scripture. But again, this, this crowd, as they were saying this, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Everyone was praising Jesus, hoping that he would deliver them from the hands of the Romans. But that's not truly a genuine worship. Can we know this because eventually people will turn on him. People will end up hurting him. Which gets me to wonder for some of us, is the reason why you come to Christ, because you have some sort of expectation about Christ that isn't actually biblical. Do you only, do you only profess... And willing to claim to follow Jesus when things are easy. Because Jesus makes us some definitive points about following him. He said, if you you love me, you will keep my commandments. And early on in our salvation, we'll we'll say that. We'll follow you, Lord, to the very end. We're willing to give my life to you. We're going to get baptized. We're going to do all of these things for you until it gets difficult. Until there's some command that the world says, "That's that's outdated and antiquated. Why would you still hold to those teachings of Jesus? Are you still going to hold to the the commands of Christ because you love the Lord? Because there's so many people in our culture, so many people in our day and age now that go to Christ for the wrong reasons. They think that just believing in Christ will give them prosperity and peace, not knowing that being a believer will cost us. Jesus tells them, if you want to be my disciple, you have to pick up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. That's not an easy life. And I'm not saying you should deliberately look for a difficult life. I'm just saying that faithfulness in the Lord will naturally draw a difficult life. And many people will deny the faith because of it. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you walk on the narrow path. That means that we're willing to give up and, and not be distracted and be entertained by the things of the world. But rather we're willing to devote our entire life to him. Even if it means a lonely path. These, this multitude here, this whole crowd, they said the right things, they did the right things, only when things were easy. But when Jesus did not meet their expectations, they left him. and He was alone and died alone because of it. Also, we have to learn through this that God's timing is perfect in everything. Everything that God prophesied came to pass. And I know that for us as Christians, especially uh, for us that's, you know, I mean, we look at the Old Testament, we look at the New Testament, and we look at current events, and I know in the last week or so, there's just been so many debates online between, is this the end of the world? Is what's going on in the Middle East, this is it? Is this the fulfillment of all the things that we hear and that we read in Scripture? It can be, it may not be, we don't know but it doesn't really matter because that should not change the fact that like God is in control of all things. God is sovereign over all the events in history, and we don't need to worry or panic because we know that we're in the hands of God and everything in the world that happens is in, is is in God's hands. This doesn't mean that we give up on the things of life, but it just means that we, can, we don't need to worry about tomorrow because today has enough problems on its own. All we have to do is continue to entrust the Lord. Now we know the next the major event in redemptive history is the return of Christ. Right, The rapture is going to happen. So we anticipate that. We look forward to that day. But until then, we need to be faithful with, our, with the life that God has given us, whether that means evangelism or living a holy life, whatever it may be. We don't need to worry, but as long as we just continue to trust in the Lord and that he, is, he has everything under control, including the events in this world. God's timing on every global event is perfect. Nothing that we can do can change that. Nothing we can do, we can't even anticipate when the future, what the future looks like. And that's not our task. We just need to be faithful to the Lord in the moment. That's the really first lesson for us is that God's timing is perfect in everything. And we see that, right? Throughout this entire text, from the small things to the big things, God is in complete control. The second thing that I want us to learn before we call it a night is that Jesus is for you, but it is not about you. Jesus is for you, but it's not about you. Jesus is for you in, that, in the sense that he saved us, he redeemed us. But the life that you have here, it's not, every, not everything is focused on you. It's about Christ. The crowd here, they were cheering for him, they, but they were doing all of these things because they were thinking about themselves. They wanted prosperity. They thought that Christ doing what they, he was going to do was about them. And it was about them, but not the thing that they were hoping. In the same way when we think about the church as well. When we come to the church, yes, the church is a blessing. It's a place where you can fellowship. It's a place that you can learn about the Lord. It's a place where we can sing about Christ. All of those things are true. But it's not about you. It's about Christ. All that we do here in the church, everything that we do in life, it's about the Lord. When you think about your work, even that is about the Lord. When you think about your entertainment, that is about the Lord. When you think about your hobbies, when you think about your relationships, when you think about every little detail, your parenting, whatever it may be, it's always centered around Christ. Christ is for us in the sense that he will give us the ability to be faithful to him, but it's not about us. And when we make the things about us, we will be disappointed. That's because we have a false expectation of who Jesus is. We think that if we have just a little bit Jesus in our life, then we can have morals. Or if we have Jesus in our life, then that means... Everything should go well, or if I have Jesus in my life, then parenting should be easy. No, it's not about you. It's always been about the Lord. Christ, again, is for you, but it's not about you. I think as Christians, we live in a very consumeristic mentality. We think that being in the church is just about what I want and what will be for me, but it's not about you. It will be a blessing to you because of other people's faithfulness or even your faithfulness to the Lord. But it's everything is focused in directing our, the glory to the Lord. It's not about us. The multitude here, they thought that Christ was there strictly for them in, a, in an earthly sense. They didn't realize there's actually something even greater, and that is the redemption of their souls. And I hope that for some of you, you check your own heart, to why are you here? Why do you call yourself a Christian? Because right now, it seems easy to be a Christian, when things here, even, even though there seems to be a rising tide in people hating Christians, it's still relatively easier than to say some of our believers in the Middle East right now. There are a lot of persecuted Christians all over the world that makes us look like wimps. And they truly have a love for the Lord. They knew that, they know that like this life is meant for him and that this life is short. And then whatever time they have left on this planet, they want to use it to the fullest for the glory of God. They, want, they know that they're redeemed by the Lord and all their hope is in Christ. Much like the songs that we sang today, all I have is Christ. If, and this is what Pastor Roger said earlier, if, if you've lost everything in the world and all you have is Christ, are you satisfied? Is that enough for you? Because if Christ is not enough, then you need to see and challenge your heart to see, are you even a believer? Because Christ is our everything. If we, if we lose everything in this life, it doesn't matter because the only thing that matters in our life is the, our relationship with the Lord. And that's the greatest truth in the thing that we have possessed in this life. It's not the, the jobs, it's not the relationships, not even this church. The greatest thing that we get to have is a, rela- a right relationship with our Heavenly Father because of Jesus Christ. And I hope that throughout this lesson, that you learn to trust in God's timing in all things. Just like how we see the events play out here, from the small things that were prophesied all the way back from Genesis, all in Zechariah, in the book of Daniel, all of these things are, are, are basically converging to this event. We can see that God is truly sovereign. God protected the line of Judah. He, protected, uh, he was able to protect Jesus when he was a child. All the way to this point, everything with God is in control. Not only that, but that Jesus is for you and it's not about you. It's always about Christ. It's always about who he is. And that we want. And if we understand that to be a reality, that we would want to do all things for his glory. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, thank you for your word. And Lord, although this is almost like a mock entry, we know that as we continue on studying the book of Mark, we know that you will be flogged, you'll be mocked, you'll be scourged, You'll be hanged and you'll be killed. And we know this is really the beginning of the end of your earthly ministry. And we look at that and it should compel us to love you more. Knowing that you have preserved your promises that when kingdoms rise and fall that your word is still there. That there is a perseverance you, through your persevering power. You kept your promises. Lord, we long for the day that you return. That you could fulfill the promises that you've made to your people. Lord, we know that you fulfilled all of these promises in, in, that's in scripture already, and we look forward to really whatever the future has is revealed in your word as well. Lord, come quickly, and may we be faithful until you return, Lord. Pray, Lord, that we can live holy lives, that we continue to be dependent on you in all things, and that we do all things for your glory. Thank you for this time that we learn about you and your word. In your son's name, I pray. Amen.